0: Hey, Tome Show listeners, it's time for Gen Con 2012, and this recording is coming to you straight from the con.
1: That's right, we present to you here an unedited recording straight from the best four days in gaming. But be aware of what that means. We did not dictate the content, we are not censoring for language, and while our editor Sam will try to make the sound as good as possible, we're in a large room trying to capture as much sound as possible. So it may not be as crisp and clear as you're used to.
0: With that said, we as always have to give credit to the folks who help us pay the bills around here, and that's Continue Magazine. It's a quarterly magazine for all sorts of gamers, video, board, card, mini, and of course, RPGs. Be sure to swing by continuemag.com, buy a magazine, and tell them thank you for supporting the podcast.
1: Well, without further ado, your Gen Con 2012 recording, whichever one it happens to be this time around.
0: Enjoy.
2: So, um <laughs> <laughs> Start. <laughs> um, I'm James Wyatt. I'm the creative manager for D&D at Wizards of the Coast. That means that I basically have my fingers in every single pie that story is involved in. Um, the novel editors report to me. I work on adventures and settings for D&D. Uh, I work a lot with uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, digital team to coordinate with uh, licensees who are making D&D video games like D&D Online or the forthcoming Neverwinter. Um, so story is my job. And in terms of this panel, that means that I'm the guy who's working with all of our wonderful authors here to uh, coordinate their stories, make sure they fit together and make sense. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But let me let, run down the line here and let everybody introduce themselves to you in case there are some here you don't know.
3: <coughs> Go ahead. Me?
4: Okay. Uh, I'm Richard Lee Byers. All right, write uh, fantasy, some horror on the side. I've, uh, recent years, I've done The uh, Brotherhood of the Griffin, uh, Forgotten Realms books. Uh, the uh, next one of those is Profit of the Dead, it's coming out in February, also have an urban first new, new urban fantasy series coming out in uh, January, that book is called One God's Bluff
2: um, hang on a second because I'm going to give you this microphone okay. I'm going scoot this one over to Richard or that, oh, we have six people and six microphones so hopefully this will work well, <laughs> right. But you can if pass, pass it, it around, around if yeah, yeah. in case Sorry. somebody wants to pace which I Okay. Right
5: Thanks. I'm Troy Denning. Uh, I wrote my first Forgotten Realms novel in I don't know, nineteen eighty it was Waterdeep, whatever whenever that was published. Um, under the name of Richard Hollinson. I think it was in the eighties. Uh, <laughs> I remember a time called the eighties.
3: Um,
5: oh, yeah. uh, my most recent Forgotten Realms novel was um, Return of the Arch Wizards Trilogy uh, I think that was published around 2001 or some, somewhere in there i uh, been writing Star Wars since and am thrilled to be returning to help with the Sundering uh, which is going to be a really fun project uh, I'm Aaron M. Evans,
0: uh, my most recent Forgotten Realms novel is Brimstone Angels I um, also have the sequel Lesser Evils is coming out in December. Um and yeah, I guess I'm the baby of the bunch here. And <laughs> have a baby. I uh, yeah, and I have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> We're
5: working on getting her a gray beard.
0: <laughs> Can I have a pink one? <laughs> mm. the am I might join
2: that. Aaron? That'd be
3: awesome.
6: <laughs> hmm. Hi, my name is Ed Greenwood and I'm a gamer.
3: <laughs> Hi, Ed. <laughs>
6: And, and I created the Forgotten so It's all my fault. Yeah, just a bit.
2: <laughs>
7: <laughs> I'm uh, Paul Camp. I, you know, write stories, take old medicine. Fully intend to fall off the
2: end of this stage by the end of this.
7: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: okay. So what we're going to do is I'm going to start off preaching a little sermon, going back to my roots, uh, based on the holy texts of Waterdeep and Evermeet. Um, to, to give you a little bit of a story introduction to this topic of what is the sound and then I will turn it over to the people you really want to hear talk uh, to, to talk about really whatever they want to talk about.
7: But also, I, I mean, jump in. ask questions. We yes. all said beforehand, we're like, listen, if you're not asking questions, we are totally sure because we have messed up, so get up and ask. Or this could be a very short seminar. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll shout from now on. Ask questions is all I'm saying, please. Are,
2: are all the microphones on? I think mine. You just got to get them a little closer. Okay. Okay. Get a little closer. Oh, that's not going (laughs) to work. Let's see if this cable can move at all. Oh, that's the problem. Richard, can you lift your foot, please? Yes. Yes. (laughs) That actually gives us a little more (laughs) bridges. All right. There you go.
3: All right. Can you guys hear me? Perfect. Sit
8: forward. Are, are we better?
2: Okay. So, 19,000 years ago in the Forgotten Realms, hundreds of elven high mages came together at the gathering place to cast a mighty spell, one that would create a new elven homeland where the elves could live in peace from, and safe from the forces of Lolth and Melar and the other evils that threatened them. Uh, the spell succeeded, more or less creating the Isle of Evermeet, far off to the west, a green and pleasant land where they could live in peace, uh, but Evermeet was born out of a tragic catastrophe. Such powerful magic was beyond the control of even these powerful high mages, and even as the new land was born, the one land, Ferun, was torn apart into different continents, giving its name to the largest of those continents. So. Eleandreth of Orishar was an elven wizard of the time. He was not a high mage. He was, didn't participate in the ritual and therefore didn't die. Um, but he was still attuned to the magical weave. And as the spell, the spell of the high mages spread, it rippled forward and backward through time. And Eleandreth saw two similar events to that sundering. And in the, this verse, he described all three of them as sunderings. Um, His verse is actually why the Sundering, the Elden Sundering, is called the Sundering. And uh, it also pointed to two other events when the world was torn asunder. So the first one of those is known to historians as the Tearfall. And it happened 32,000 years ago when the world was dominated by the creator races and humans were primitive ape-like beings living in caves. One of the creator races was an amphibioid race called the Batraki. And they were embroiled in a war against armies of titans. Desperate to save themselves in this losing battle, they cast a mighty spell of their own and they woke several primordials from their slumber. As primordials started to rise up and uh, rampage across the world again, the gods quickly came to confront their ancient foes and mighty battle ensued. Uh, Earthquakes, fires, and windstorms tore across the world and as the battle drew to a climax, a primordial called Asguroth, the world-shaper, took an ice moon and basically said, if I can't rule this planet, no one can, and hurled it toward the world. Then the Overgod stepped in. Ao said, no, this world is not going to be destroyed, and he created a twin of it. He gave the gods dominion over Toril, the old world, and gave the primordial's dominion over Abir, the new one. There are ancient reports from a, a different creator race, the Saruk, that comment on the changing of the stars, but until recently, no one really understood what that meant or gave it much credence. Asgaroth's attack did not leave Toril unscathed. Continents were torn apart, and the world was devastated. The four inner seas merged together to form what is now the Sea of Fallen Stars. The dramatic climate change that followed pretty much spelled the extinction of the Patrachi and gave rise to the uh, dominance of the dragons. Scholars have long called this event the Tearfall and speculated that a comet, or maybe an ice moon, uh, fell from the sky and, and dealt all this damage. But again, it wasn't until the return of Ebir and the spell plague that the true significance of the event became clear. What is less well-known is the role played in this event by ancient artifacts called the Tablets of Fate. Ao created these tablets at the separation of the world to stand as a barrier between the two worlds. To keep the gods and the primordials separate from each other and maintain a precarious balance between the two. In the immortal words of the novel Waterdeep, on these artifacts, the overlord said, <laughs> I have recorded the forces that balance law and chaos. The tablets of fate served as pillars to maintain the separations of the worlds, anchors for the mighty magic that Ao used to Sunder the worlds, and a clear delimitation of the uh, role of gods and primordials in the universe. Well, that was the first Sundering. 14,000 years later was the Sundering of Eleandreth's time, when the Elven High Mages used the spell that was actually similar in concept to the one that Ao used to separate the worlds in the first place. They were trying to tear the, uh, the fabric of reality slightly to create this homeland, but they lacked an artifact that could serve as a focus, the way the Tablets of Fate had, and that's part of the reason that the spell ran out of control and dealt the devastation that it did. Hundreds of cities were washed away, thousands of elves lay dead, and the face of Toril was changed forever. That was for you, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Still, the spell was successful. Like Ao's magic, uh, it tore apart the fabric of the world and even the planes, taking a little piece out of Arvindor and plopping it down in the middle of the trackless sea to serve as a bridge between worlds and a, a homeland, a peaceful refuge for the elves. Then came the time of troubles. In 1358, uh, Miracle and Bane stole the tablets of fate from Eo, believing that they could gain some of Eo's power. Eo called the other gods into his presence and said, give them back. Nobody stepped forward, and so Eo banished them all into mortal form to walk the earth. Um, During this time of troubles, which is also called the Avatar Crisis, magic became unpredictable and the prayers of the faithful went unanswered. Now eventually the tablets of fate were returned, but by then the damage had been done. Eo destroyed the tablets of fate, since the gods had clearly demonstrated that they didn't care anything about the balance they they were meant to uphold. Again, in the words of Waterdeep, the tablets mean nothing, Eo said to the gods, because the gods had made a mockery of of their meaning. I kept them to remind you that I created gods to serve the balance, not to twist it to your own ends. But this point was lost on you. You saw the tablets as a set of rules by which to play juvenile games of prestige and pomp. Then when the rules became inconvenient, you stole them. Since the gods cared nothing for the balance they were supposed to serve, Eo destroyed the tablets and left them to their games. He destroyed the pillars that kept Abir and Toril apart. If the gods were determined to live in strife and upheaval, they might as well fight the primordials again. So the sundered worlds began a slow drift back together. From the perspective of modern histories, looking back at this event, this was the beginning of the era of upheaval. The tablets of fate might not have contained any of the overgod's power, but on them were written the names of all their gods and their portfolios, the aspects of mortal life and the natural world over which each god held sway. When the tablets were no longer in Aos' control, the divine portfolios could shift around more easily and chaos among the gods was the result. By the conclusion of the Avatar Crisis, Faroon's pantheon of gods witnessed the ascension of Sirik, Midnight, who became Mistra, and the Red Knight, the death of Bane, Baal, Ibrandul, and Miracle, and the death and subsequent rebirth of Torm. And once the tablets of fate were destroyed, the chaos continued for more than a century. Proving that they had learned nothing from the Avatar Crisis, the gods only stepped up their juvenile games of prestige and pomp. I have Several things listed up there, it's really just a long litany of what has been going on in the Forgotten Realms. Siric and Mask conspired to kill Lyra, the goddess of illusion. Velsher ascended to godhood. Bane returned to life. Loth cocooned herself in the demon web pits and emerged more powerful than ever, then set about consolidating her control over the drow. The and untheric pantheons disappeared from the realms. In a single decade between 1375 and 1385, no less than seven deities were slain, mostly of the drow and dwarven pantheons. And then came the spell plague. Syrric, who was aided and abetted by Shar, murdered Mistra in her own domain. The plane disintegrated at once and uh, destroyed the god Severus and sent uh, Azuth and Belsharun reeling into the astral plane. Without Mistra to govern the weave, magic burst its bonds and ran wild across the world. And a year later, perhaps hurried by the effect of the spell plague, that collision of worlds became complete. Collision really is, best, as is at best a helpful metaphor because really the world's intermingled with regions and continents properly belonging to one world appearing instead on the other. So the spell plague began the second act of the era of upheaval, marked by just as much chaos as the first few decades after the time of troubles. During the century after the spell plague, the number of gods active in the pantheon dropped again. More deities died, some simply left and a few were revealed to be aspects of other gods, or else they just diminished so much that they merged into the essence of similar gods. Uh, Some deities lost so much power that they became servants to other gods, kind of taking shelter under the wings of greater powers. A holy new god, Zahir, appeared in the realms, and uh, Asmodeus became a, a god in his own right. And even at the same time as all this upheaval was going on in the divine realm, the political realm was not much better. The geopolitical situation, <laughs> speaking of <wolf>, law, <laughs> um, the, the world of Faroon was shaken time and again by events from the horrid invasion and the threat from, th- threat from the sea to the conquest of Sembia and the restoration of Mithronor. So, now the third and final act of the era of upheaval begins. The next sundering, the third sundering, our sundering. <laughs> So is it possible for the Overgod to change his mind? Perhaps Eo has relented, realizing that letting the child gods run rampant has done more harm than good to his creation. Or perhaps he decided he had made his point sufficiently clear, and finally the dense, thick-headed gods would get it. Maybe he planned all along to end the era of upheaval at this specific moment in history. In either case, the gods have realized that Eo plans to recreate the tablets of fate. They know the plan. But they really have no idea what it means for them. They know that things will be different when he's done. But different gods have different ideas of what that might mean. Some of them suspect is going to establish a hierarchy of power based on how many worshippers each god uh, has when the tablets are complete. Because at the end of the Avatar Crisis, he told them that's what they needed, is to build up worshippers. Um, so, they use their mortal agents, their chosen, to help them gain as many followers as possible in this last remaining sliver of time they have left. Others suspect or fear that Aeol will be reassigning portfolios to get them clearly del- delineated, delineated. Good grief. On the tablets again. Um, so, they imbue their chosen with power to exert the god's influence over his or her portfolio in the world, to kind of stake that claim. Um, Some think it's pretty much the end of the world, so they're sending their chosen to make sure that their followers all end up in the right heaven when it's all over. By and large, the gods feel like they have to do something before the end comes, before the sundry is complete and the tablets of fate are rewritten. So by the time that ends come, that end comes, the tablets will be recreated. The worlds of Abir and Toro will be separated once more, and Toro restored to something akin to its (coughs) former self. The Pantheon will be reshaped and enriched once more, and the political landscape of Faroon will change significantly. Once it is over, the word of Eo declares that the era of upheaval is ended. Great stories remain to be told in this new era, but they are not the stories of gods and godlike beings. They are the tales of mortal heroes taking a stand to preserve the world they love. They are your stories. So there is no single story of the Sundering. Countless stories emerge during the course of this dramatic event, stories of mighty heroes and of ordinary folks who are struggling to stay alive and defend what they hold dear. Against the backdrop of this divine drama and this political upheaval of the Sundering, we're highlighting six of those stories in novels. First is The Companions by Bob Seltzer. Then, The Godborn by Paul Kemp. Uh... The Adversary by Aaron M. Evans, The Reaver by Richard Lee Byers, The Sentinel by Troy Denning, and The Herald by Ed Greenwood. So in these six novels we're telling the stories of six people, great and small, with their allies and enemies, as the great events of the gods and the chosen, wars and upheavals play out around them. None of these characters, even Elminster, can even see, much less determine, what the end of the sundering will bring. But all of them, through the choices they make, will leave a lasting mark on the new world. I'm almost done. <laughs> Woo, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so these novels uh, are not the only stories to be told during the Sundering. Uh, IDW, our licensing partner for comics, now and lapsing into business speak, uh, will be telling uh, comic uh, using comics to tell stories of other characters and other lands in this tumultuous time. Um, Bob and Ed are working on two adventures we'll release next year and they'll provide your characters with their own opportunities to make their mark on the changing world now no. so with that I will let our authors uh, take over whatever you guys want to talk about.
6: I thought you were just gonna say chapter one.
2: Mm. Yeah. <laughs> All I'm gonna say is that
7: A.R. sounds like
3: a Really? <laughs> <laughs>
4: well that's, that's kind of traditional about these supreme I suppose it's. So for the supreme power beings. Did you ever read Green Lantern? Oh, yeah. You know, the guardians of the universe, always wrong, true. always jerks. You know? well, Four comics, Odin, page. always wrong, always a jerk. You know? always Even done. the
2: best parents have yeah. their limits of patience. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> I've left everybody speechless. Yeah.
4: Well,. We're waiting for Bob. Oh uh, well, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> this is his first book, right? Yeah. Just yeah. start with
7: you. I I am really bad at talking about my own books. So I won't do that. But um, when I was invited to participate in this, I mean, one of the things that James said is that he wanted to kind of um, circle back to the classic feel of the realms, and the implication being that maybe we lost our way a little bit in that respect, and um, I, that was exciting. So when he asked me if I wanted to participate, I said, "Why?" Well, Indeed, I do, very much so. So that has been kind of the theme, sort of the through line for all of our discussions and all of the emails and the story summit and everything else was like, what makes the realms the realms for you? And we've all kind of worked on that thread throughout. And, you know, obviously it's subjective. There are some differences. Like for me, I look back, when I think of the, the, the gray box, do you guys remember that? They'd have, like, the, and, and here's the news Things you remember these? They'd you know, like, here's the news for Tar Steps, you know. I, I do remember A those. merchant out of Sembia, and Greenwood, finds a, you know, Dark Darko's body washed up in the River Robin. And there were just all these little threads, and it was rich, and it had this sense of wonder and this sense of adventure, and, and I'm talking again, and nobody can hear a damn
3: thing am saying. <laughs> and
7: mysteries, un- it just, it really had a kind of magic that's difficult to articulate, but that was present in both the lore and the novels. And maybe, maybe... Maybe things got a little bit away from that, but, but I, I mean I feel really good that they're going back in the right direction now. I
9: really
6: feel uh, that. No error, no error.
3: No, no, no,
9: no, no. Somebody else, me. I'm, no, I'm no, no, still you're, feeling you're my way. Talk up. Talk
6: about your character. Uh, yeah,
0: you're the next book.
6: So, so say
5: something.
2: We can talk about the characters, right? A yeah, bit. I mean, yeah, as much as you want to.
0: Yeah.
2: We, we introduced your character last night. That feels
0: very, like. Oh, yeah, as much as you want to. <laughs> sure.
2: Mm. Um, we you on your performance. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, I can tell the part that we were talking about at the Candlekeep Cave Center last night. Um, you know, originally, you know, they said, we want you to think about a human character. Um, and I had started Brimstone Angels, and I was working on the sequel, Lesser Evils, and I had sort of invested in this storyline that I was really excited about. Um, so I tried to come up with a book, a good book um, of a human character, um... But it was really hard because, you know, I, I kind of had something pretty cool, I thought, going. Um, and what was even harder is that when I looked at all the, you know, the sort of dramatic things that we were going to be doing with the, the gods and the countries, I'm like, wow, you know, what I was going to do fit in really well. Um, and when I came to James and I said, you know, I can come up with that other book, but I'm going to be really sad that I can't do my story because you feel like people don't want to hear about tieflings. He said, you know, we want characters that people can relate to and people that, you know, humans look like humans um, and elves, are, you know, kind of human and they, people like those. He said, you know, but you look at your most popular character and it's drizzed and you're going to tell me that Drown aren't really friggin' weird and really a little unrelatable, but, but it's because it's a good character and it's a, a, you know, it's a story you want to read about. Um, and, you know, he thought about that and he came back and he said, okay, give me another outline. Tell me what you're gonna do. Um, so now I, I have the, uh, the weird character, the other weird character, I guess, because she's on their nice dress. Um, but so I, I really feel good about how she fits in and how it takes you know, what happened in fourth edition. I think the thing about the rounds is that we've got all that continuity and, and something happens and it affects other things. Um, so that stuff still happened. We have to blend it back in. Um, and make it feel like the whole beautiful, deep history of the realms is all, you know, seamless again. Um, so I'm really excited about it.
2: Aaron was in kind of an awkward position. We had the story summit at Wizards last <laughs> November. Um, mm-hmm.
0: and he feels it he goes, it's November 15th, is that okay? I said, that's my due date.
3: Yeah. <laughs> So,
0: I was a little early. I, was, I was on the phone. I was four days um, after I had my baby. <laughs> yeah.
2: Both Aaron and Paul had brand new babies at that time. So, they were That's both right. participating over a speakerphone. And it turns out that actually makes communication fairly difficult. Also, you can't
0: tell who's talking. You can't hear right. half of
2: it. Yeah. But you can always tell A. That's
0: it's, true. It's you can always tell it. so and, 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 right and, and Bob. Bob, yeah. has has an Bob a,
7: you but you can't it. see our gestures
6: when we're doing this with the map and doing this to each other. You can't no, see that.
7: that. Well, you know yeah. what about it? When we watched the video yesterday at the pre- Presentation. Man, I wish I had have been there, because it was just rocket. I was so like having a blast, and like that. Man, I'm just sitting on the phone. I'm sitting outside of a caribou. I'm supposed to be at work right now. It's just us talking, so it's playing hooky. I'm sitting outside in the parking lot of a caribou on the phone talking to these guys. Man, I wish I was there. I wish I was there. <laughs> not really wish I was there. But I was, still, it was very constructive.
0: I was plotting to like sneak down there, who my husband's like, no, you're not even supposed to be standing up right now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You can't drive down to Renton.
7: And I don't fly, so I'd have to drive from Michigan
6: it's a long drive.
2: That's a okay. So also an interesting thing about both the story summit we did in November and the little mini one we did two days ago is that in both cases I went in there with some idea of the direction I wanted to go and how we might execute that. And in both cases these guys came up with better ideas and we went with them. So uh, it has been a great collaborative process of, of letting folks tell the stories that they want to tell and steering them toward uh, a goal that we all agree on. You know, in that respect, my
7: experience is quite similar to Aaron's in that um, when James first contacted me about the Sundering, I had already um, put together a lot of, of what is now the Godborn, but was intended initially to be kind of book one of a trilogy, continuing the Erebus Tale story. And, um, you know, they, they, they said, listen, we want you to do that, but we also want you to do this. And I said, great. And then we sat in on the story summit, and as that directions started to get established through kind of the collaborative efforts here it seemed very very clear to me that the story i had intended to tell in an entire cycle of night trilogy would really fit extraordinarily well into the sunry with just one really big book so that's that's how that shook out it's
0: kind of cool because you know people are talking and they don't know what's going on in your head or your manuscript and you're like oh my gosh but this this that's fun and all of a sudden this is an even better book oh yeah that's right
7: so that was cool
6: I think the one thing that we can say about all of our books so far and I say so far because none of them are written yet oh,
3: <laughs> they're not
6: is that they are focused down on their characters. You are looking over the shoulders of characters and it's not going to be Galactus and the Silver Surfer and 15 mm-hmm. gods sitting around. It, you're going to be down in the trenches with the people who are living through all that's going on in the sundering and there's going to be widespread chaos and as you know communications in the realms aren't always superb at the best of times um so it's going to be right down over the shoulders of the characters as opposed to ao looks down and gives you the introduction right yeah.
2: so that's why i gave the sermon outside of the novels <laughs> yeah
6: I mean that's very much
4: what my book is going to be for sure. I, I, it's uh, when you were talking when I was just thinking yesterday, and you talked about you know realms fiction and by extension all fiction being about moral choices. And I thought, thank God I'm doing something right because um, <laughs> <laughs> because um, my book is going to be about characters who are having a very, very difficult time going through the chaos and the sundering and are confronted with a very stark choice between um, ruthless pragmatism, essentially in the interest of survival and, you know, clinging to hope and clinging to community and, uh, and you know, how they're going to pick and how they will pick does have implications for you know, the kind of politics and the ethos and life in a particular section of the realms going forward, you know, for the foreseeable future. And uh, all this, of course, in the context of a kick-ass sword and sorcery adventure. And uh, I'm going to create what I think is going to be a very cool new hero who will continue on in, in further adventures. He's like kind of guy that I like to write. He's, you know, very going to be very, uh, you know, kind of sardonic, wisecracking, uh Resourceful uh, character, good with a sword, kind of guy I, I very much enjoy doing. Uh, that, that said, it's going to be very much a story on, on the human level and very much a you know a story about moral choices. That said, uh, by the end of it, I think you will see a couple aspects of the realms that I suspect a lot of you kind of missed, sort of coming back in, and then you'll kind of say, "Oh yeah, they're, they're, that's." I'm really glad to see that bit back.
5: Well this started for me when I got a call that said hey we're doing something interesting we'd like to have you come out and talk to us and uh, I said sure I'll come out and talk and I came out for the the three-day story conference and we started talking about what what they wanted to do with the Forgotten Realms and and, um, in terms of returning it to the the heart of high fantasy which is what I've always loved about about the Realms and by the time we, we got through with it, I was, we were developing our story ideas and, and I walked out of that with a, with an outline that I was just chomping at the teeth to do. So, you know, chomping at the bits to do. It was just a really cool process. Um, and so the Sentinel is, is going to be, uh, the book number five in the series. It, uh, will feature obviously, a, a paladin, an embittered paladin, and lots and lots of forbidden love. So, <laughs> it's, uh, it's going to be fun lots
6: of
3: forbidden love
6: oh yes I should talk about my book cause yeah. it's the last one yeah. Yeah. and of course as the last book um, it's more up in the air than all the others because if there's anything that still needs to be said or done or shown by the time we get to book six well there's only one last chance to do it so in it goes but but. It's starting as a story, picking up on Elminster, and you know where he is from the the books thus far. He's burnt out. He wants to die. He doesn't feel he can die without making sure that the weave is guarded or the realms will not be torn asunder by misuse of magic. So he has to have successors and he's trying to train them. And of course, whenever he selects and trains a successor, that paints a target on them for everybody in the realms. And Storm is is sort of at his side for all this and feeling the same way. And what we're basically doing is telling the story of how this is going to affect them, all of this chaos and the sundering. So, you're, we're again, like I said earlier, we're all starting down at the character level. What happens? Well, I can't tell you that for three good reasons. One, because it's, it's a secret. Mm-hmm. And, and one, because, hey, we want you to buy the book, so what, well, we can't tell you the whole story of the book. And the most important thing, because we don't know yet. <laughs> 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 we
2: have very thorough outlines. And outlines are prone to significant revision in the course of
6: writing. Well, yeah. It's like battle plans never surviving contact with the enemy. You have this nice outline, and the editor approves it, and everybody's smiling, and then you write the book, and it's nothing like the outline.
0: (laughs) Every book I've done, I ended up adding a character that I didn't know I needed.
5: And and having batted cleanup a couple of times myself, oh boy, are you in for it, Ed?
6: That's okay, it's magic!
2: <laughs> Hopefully we're getting a level of coordination with all these meetings and everything mm. that will make Dad's job at least a little bit easier.
6: I'll just drink a lot.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
6: no, it'll be, it'll be no problem. By the, by the time that rolls around, we will have been running on the rails for so long that no matter how many cows they put in front of us, we'll just keep going. Let
3: <laughs>
2: me think. You want to move to questions? Sure, sure.
3: Let's,
2: yeah. let's move to questions. I would like to suggest that you form a queue at the microphone there so that we can hear your questions, and in yeah. fact, everybody can hear your questions. You have to speak at a microphone, too.
3: Right. <laughs> if we got to do it, you got to do it. <laughs> and we will make sure that we're on <laughs> That would be good.
10: be available as like a hardbound books or paperback? so I know the more recent books are just all the books if they're
2: available. These will all have an initial hardcover release. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, just a quick fanboy question, just have to ask what my favorite character. What does the Sundry mean for Searich?
7: <laughs>
5: um, I guess I should answer that one, right? It should be me. Right. I'll answer, okay, I'll answer it as, as much as I can. All
3: right.
5: Um, in case, um, for those of you who don't know, I was one of the original people who invented Sirik with the Avatar trilogy. So he's been kind of a favorite of mine for a while. Um, I enjoyed, wrote a book called um, Crucible, The Trial of Sirik the Mad, um, in which Sirik was restored retor- to sanity uh, somewhat reluctantly by his chosen Malik, who has somehow reemerges a 100 years later to appear in the Sentinel, um, doing Sirik's bidding. So it will mean something significant for Sirik. I don't know that I should actually say what it is quite
0: should
5: yet. buy a choice book. Yeah. But he, <laughs> <laughs> it's a what? I said
0: you should buy your book.
5: Oh, yeah. <laughs> But but Siric will be in it, um, there not really as a character. Days, but then but there are he's bad days. Yeah, he's in it. He's a uh, he's a definite force in it. Let me let me put it that way. Yeah.
8: Hi. Um, the uh, other seminars have addressed the uh, sort of the philosophy of uh, the way that the Forgotten Realms is being brought back, and the way d d Next is uh, uh, coming around to being very much. Um, uh, influenced by the by us, the, right. you know, the gamers, and how everything that's going to be happening moving forward is going to be influenced largely by what we do. So my question is about the creative process here. So this is obviously not going to all come out at the same time. These books are going to come out with intervals and periods right. in between.
2: I probably should have said that. They're coming out every two months starting August of next year, so oh, over the course oh, wow. of a single
8: year. Okay, so every, every two months. And so the question that I have is regarding the whole philosophy of uh, the modular aspect of the game and the way in which uh, the direction is influenced very much dynamically by our reactions. Uh, your creative process as writers, my question is, is your, are your manuscripts going to be designed in a way to respond to our reactions to those earlier books? Obviously, Bob's got, he's got to launch it, but as the books go on, are, are, are you as, as authors, are you going to be approaching it from the standpoint, well, let's see what people think of this and to maybe sort of move it in directions that um, are in line with the philosophy of our responses or do you pretty much have a set plan in mind? And obviously we want you to write what you want to write, but I'm just curious how the philosophy of us influencing everything is going to mesh with your your creative direction.
4: Well, I don't think that comes into this so much because all these books are gonna be written before you see the first one.
2: Okay, Um, part of what we're doing with The Sundering is setting up a world where you can make a difference more easily. Uh, We are setting up the stage for your characters to come on as significant actors again. Um, There may be, well, so we're publishing two adventures during the course of The Sundering that can, as I said before, your characters will have a chance to make some mark on the world during the course of The Sundering. That won't necessarily be reflected in the the smaller local stories that these guys are telling in in their novels, but it may well be reflected
8: in uh, future products detailing those areas. Yeah. Sure. And I wouldn't want to, I don't think any of us would want to do anything that would affect the direction of the books. It's more just uh, as as the authors just responding to our input. You know, we're all looking forward. To it. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. It,
5: I think you could say that it, your responses will kind of dictate the or or guide the direction of the world itself. Yeah. And as the then the, the direction of the world itself is going to guide whatever follows from the sundering.
4: Yeah. You see if, your that makes sense. See your input in the books that come after.
2: Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to say that I think I heard buried in your question is that um, as with D&D as a whole D&D Next we are trying to take as an inclusive uh, perspective as possible so that uh, whatever you like about any version of the realms you can find in some form in the, the post-Sundering realms okay. thank you
11: <coughs> I just had a question and a quick
7: comment uh, first quick comment that Greenwood, uh, and I was uh, memorable for Elminster and Salvatore, Dris. You, Mr. White, I'm always going to remember for the Lego Death Star that took, what, like three days to build?
2: <laughs> That's pretty hilarious, okay. <laughs> <laughs> My <laughs> lasting contribution to Dungeons and the Dragons.
12: <laughs> and I was wondering if you're going to get more uh,
11: fan-based uh, feedback uh, before doing any major changes because I was really disappointed with the death of the list already.
2: Um, I think that ties back to the, the inclusive approach I was just talking about. Uh, everything in the realms is loved by somebody. And obviously we can't have a big Forgotten Realms that exists in all times and places simultaneously, although I'm happy to say if you want to play a Forgotten Realms campaign using 5th edition rules in the 2nd edition era, I've got no problem with that and it will be easy for you to do. Um, There are creative decisions that we are going to make that sometimes we won't be able to ask uh, for input on, that's kind of the nature of the beast, but uh, in general we are trying to be better about consulting with the experts, uh, any of whom are in this room, and not at this table, uh, and paying attention to the the mood of things uh, on the internets.
4: (laughs) I have a 13-year-old son who obviously, like you said, he created 45 years ago when he were six. So he doesn't
12: have that background, forgotten Realms. Will this be a good starting point for him
2: to just jump in and be able to understand, or is there anything he should read before, or is it like a good starting point? I think these books would be a great starting mm-hmm. yeah, point.
7: Although
4: I do also recommend you buy everything that I wrote <laughs> <laughs> there's
2: Lots of
0: really good books.
2: Yeah, Many of the main characters in these books have appeared before, and and hopefully when your son reads Aaron's book, for example, he's going to want to go back and read the Brimstone Angel's books, because is awesome. Um, Thank you. But he should be able to plunge into that book without necessarily... uh,
6: No. 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 I I think
0: we're all making a point of writing it so that if you know these characters, you come in and you're like, oh, and now this is what happens. But if you're just kind of like, Forgotten Realms, what's that? That you're not going to feel completely at sea. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing to do, but it's well worth it.
6: Yeah, it, it's added resonance if you, if you know the backstory of the character. But one, one easy way to think of it is you don't have to have lived through World War II to enjoy a World War II movie, and nor do you need to know the backstory of those characters before they started screaming, yelling, and getting gunned down or flying the airplane. You know, presumably they grew up and learned to fly. You know, <laughs> but, but 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 you know, you see them at the moment of crisis, at the moment of uh, tension, and doing whatever they do, trying to be heroes, dying in front of yours, whatever. And you don't need to know how they got there. You just know they're in in the handbasket, going to hell, and you're watching. You know, <laughs> and then you'll see how it comes out at the other end.
12: I have two questions. Is that available? Am I allowed to? There's nobody behind I you. to go ahead. They're,
6: They're going to ask ten. So You just ask one and then turn around. Okay. And
12: uh, first question, and I could be wrong on this. To the extent of my knowledge, AO has never manifested on the material plane in any of the novels. Is that a possibility with this, with him having a more firm hand?
6: Are you sure he has
2: it? <laughs> I know. That's why I said i
3: sure.
2: <laughs> Um, Okay, sorry. Like I said before, I gave the sermon at the outset uh, to kind of set the stage for all of this. I don't expect that any of these novels are going to dwell on any of that uh, to to a very large extent. Uh, Elminster is probably the only one of these characters who might have any insight into that at all, Um, and I I don't think even he has very much, although that's really up to Ed. Uh Mm
6: -hmm. Um, I, I view Elminster's relationship with Ao. if any of you have ever seen Kenneth Branagh's Henry V... And Henry is romancing Catherine at the end, and they're just about to kiss, and the door's open. He says, oh, here's your father.
3: <laughs> okay.
6: okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, there are arrows in the building. <laughs> sure. okay.
12: um, after this, Hunter, after that all goes... and. I, re and everything where as far as novels are concerned are is the realms going because there was that hundred-year gap uh, our plan
2: is to keep moving forward um,
12: I, I mean I did not know if you're going to continue to move forward and tell backward at the same time you never know
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, the sundering uh, stores the six stores are they one-shots happening around a similar event or if you should we be reading them in order to get a larger story?
2: Uh, thank you for clarifying that point. They are all standalone stories. Uh, it's kind of what this graphic was meant to represent. I should have explained it better. The Sundering the is the events going on in the background. Each of these stories is, uh, is a self-contained story featuring different characters in different places, in different situations, dealing with their own stuff. You are going to want to read them all, not necessarily in order. But you know, you should buy a book every two months, <laughs> and, and read it as fast as you can be ready for the next one. Um, and it, our hope is that all of these characters will continue on in many novels yet to come. But Those but, want read order. No, read
5: but order. we probably should clarify that that they the order of the, the chronology of the stories, like Bob's will happen before Paul's, before. Errands. I mean, so they they are in order, right. yeah. but they're stand, they're chronological, but they're but they're also standalone.
2: It, it, if yeah. you read them in order, you will get the best sense of the sundering
8: unfolding in the back. Yeah,
5: yeah they tell the, the books together tell the story of the sundering through these six people's eyes. So that's how you'll get a view of what's really happening in the whole the whole world. But they'll it'll be each story will be kind of an individual story about this particular set of characters in this world and or in this this place and as they see what's happening what's happening in the world will be presented through their eyes so,
7: yeah, so they're linked by the event and then we have worked through some small connections between the, the right. books and, to make it and if
6: you're already reading all of Bob Strick's books and following his characters you're going to be following yeah. right on into that first book anyway yeah. you know. yeah. thanks okay, I'm going to try and ask this so that make
13: the answer non-spoilery but can each of you think of a particular aspect of the realms, maybe something that um, we haven't seen in a while, but that you particularly championed in the course
3: of putting
4: this together. Um, <laughs> I don't know if this, I don't know if this really completely answers your question or not, but one of the one of the things that I I really wanted to see was um, the enrichment of the Pantheon again, you know more gods and some particularly beloved gods that went away come back and um, I I, I was sticking up for that and and you're going to see that
5: I wanted to see Siri here again (laughs) almost slipped to a spoiler there
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh trying to think of something nuts but um, I'll just just say Harper's
5: (laughs) that's a good
6: good, good (laughs) one magic
7: I guess I wanted to completely say this without any spoilers, but I wanted to bring for full circle the story of, of Kale and Mask and how that ultimately plays out. So that'll happen in Godmore. I'm
2: going to pass.
7: In the past, we've had the opportunity. Um, to a lot of the short story anthologies to see some of the smaller stories that go on around some of these bigger events. And I'm wondering if there are any plans for
2: short fiction to accompany the summit. That's right, I never got a chance to actually answer that question last night. There are business concerns that are really not my department, but as far as the, the plans that I'm asking for, that is something I would certainly like to do more with.
4: If you all gotten back like 15 or 20 copies of each novel, I think you'll make an anthology pretty
3: likely. So. I bet they're like Christmas games.
7: Exactly. <laughs>
3: Insulation, and whatever you want to do. Decorate your walls. They're gorgeous covers.
12: You need to get Richard on your marketing team. <laughs> That's right.
4: <laughs> I'm a fountain of ideas. None of them good, but... Uh. <laughs>
12: Um, I wanted to start with, uh, with uh, just um, saying that I'm very pleased by what, I, what I've heard tonight. Um, in particular, the direction that you're saying how you know, the realms will go from these large series of realm-shattering events into uh, you know, a series of smaller stories following the Sundering event. Um, but uh, one request that I would like to make, uh, just something to keep in the back of your mind. Um, uh, personally, I am a fan of the complete world of Toril including continents beyond Faerun. And um, in particular, I know Troy Denning has written a, a couple novels that are set on the periphery of Faerun and even in Carpeter, and uh, those are some of my all-time favorite novels. Um, so I guess my question is, 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 um, is there any thoughts, or I mean, I know this might be long-term, but is, is there any uh, consideration
2: for uh, expanding beyond Faerun into some of the other lesser-known high um, You're right, that is a long-term question. One of the things that Mike said at the keynote last night is we want to make sure we get the Forgotten Realms right before we move on to, to dealing with other settings, and part of the, that is I've got a team of four people, two novel editors and a continuity checker and me, and if we were thinking about Greyhawk and the Forgotten Realms at the same time, for example, we would go insane. In fact, <laughs> we're already going insane. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and even within the context of focusing on the Forgotten Realms, uh, our first focus is on the heartlands. Really, um, we are looking beyond that. We are talking beyond that. We're not planning to do anything beyond that right away.
10: Okay. Thank you. Um, so I was just going to say that uh, you know I really enjoyed the history of that you like, yes. mm. <laughs> Uh <laughs> <laughs> Eric and I actually went round and round and round about mm-hmm. a lot of that. Um, but you know I'm also really looking forward to stories. And it, were talking before about you know somebody new to the realms and uh, I can still remember when I got the map of the realms before the, even the great box had come out it was like tuck that dragon next to me I spent a whole afternoon pouring over it trying to figure it out um and just you know how much magic there was and you know, here we are 25 like, years later and um you know my daughter and you know, I was 10 and wanting to introduce her to that same sense of magic um you know reading I mean I think that there's a lot of people who were of the realms. We're now introducing the second generation and having the opportunity to put books like this to do that and to recreate the field um, really sounds like a wonderful opportunity. So it's more of a uh, comment than a question. Mm -hmm. But maybe what I would say is uh, if it's possible to put maps at the beginning of the books, they often add to that sense of wonder. Uh, And I don't know if that's on the plan list or not, but something to make people go, what is that? What is that? What's that over there? Here, here, more good maps. Yes. 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 Yes.
2: Uh, I think I'm going to give away a little spoiler. We, uh, we actually had a project going in and going on in the office a while ago where we took the maps from the original gray box, scanned them, and had an artist uh, turn them all into vector images so that we can use them at any scale. And that is our plan, to use those maps as the basis for everything we do. Hi, my name is
8: Brian. Uh, as a store owner I, with a large D&D Play community, uh, my store Many of them are kind of in wonder about what's coming with D&D Next. And they're going to be looking at these books and wondering what sort of implications they might have for their characters and their stories and their backgrounds and their themes as they move forward. I'm curious to know, is is there going to be, are, are, are the materials that have been found in these books going to play a role in the in those core books as they come out with D&D Next? Or is it going to be separated still as it has been in the past?
2: Uh, The core books are not going to have, well, as far as we know right now, because we're not writing those books yet, they are not going to have setting information that is tied to a specific point in time. Um, You will see in the encounter seasons at the end of next year as we're releasing those adventures, uh, the the encounters and the adventures will be tied together so that uh, characters in in, in in-store play, players in in in-store play, will have a chance to to, uh, experience the sundering in those ways. As far as what happens in well, whenever we launch, the Next is very hard to say, but uh, it's probably fair to say that characters will have a chance to experience the realms in whatever state it's in at that point.
3: Sure. <laughs> Hear me. <clears throat> Sorry. Um,
11: with the with this particular time of. I guess the past few years, we've seen a lot of rebooting of television shows, movies. Did you guys have a fear that you know you might get you know the tag? They rebooted the realms.
2: I I have a note here that I particularly wanted to stress that that's not what we're doing. (laughs) Um, We're not we're not rebooting. We're not changing any past continuity. Uh, That was actually really important to us. We discussed it a lot, honestly. We looked at what Star Trek did and said, wow, that that was really successful. But that doesn't work for us. Um, Part of the reason that doesn't work for us is because of the the canon we have and ongoing stories that we have that we have no interest in stopping. And if we were to just go back to some arbitrary point in time in in the realms, then, well, you kind of know what Drit's story is well beyond that. And how do you fit that in? or if we go back and say, oh, you know what? The spell plague never happened. Well, that's, that's kind of a diss to all the authors who have written about it happening or having ha- happened. And, and that's not something we want to do either. We want to respect the work of everybody who's written and worked in the realms before um, and not uh, dismiss any of it, even as in some cases we undo the effects of it.
8: Will the planes be affected in any way by this? Ooh. yeah there'll be
6: longer wait times at the airport
4: (laughs) you'll have to take off your shoes (laughs) I
2: I think it would be hard for them not to be (laughs) although I don't expect that that's an area we're going to spend a lot of time talking about in the short term
12: hello again Um, last night you talked about how um, kind of your idea of going forward with this is, you know, different ways of arcane, divine, psionics, stuff like that as far as magic is concerned in general. You said you were moving forward and that you were wanting to use all three now since third edition? Third edition, I believe. Psionics has grown and become more popular. Will you be progressing with that? I've always been a
2: big psionics fan. We have a lot of ideas about how we might handle psionics in, the, in D&D Next, and nothing firmly settled yet. But obviously they're a part of the game, and people like you and, and many of us uh, like them, and so there's got to be room for them to take it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
5: I, it would be pretty cool to put some psionics in the Sentinel, don't you think? we we can do that can't we we can do whatever you want you see I love working with these guys
2: (laughs) I'm quite serious send me an email
6: (laughs) which is shorthand for convince me
2: (laughs) no Uh, one of the things that we're doing is we're working on the rules actually this is something I'm really excited about Uh, as work has been going on about the, the tiefling race Uh, Nina Hess, who's Aaron's editor, sends it to Aaron and says, what do you think? Two things are kind of important to you. Let's make sure we don't (laughs) mess up your work. Similarly, I'm going to be sending her... Or have you seen The Warlock already? I've
0: seen The Warlock. I sent you notes back on The Warlock. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, That's pretty cool. (laughs) Which is all... part. A big part of my job is making sure that mechanics and stories sync up. Um, And that is true in terms of making sure that the, the, our novels don't contradict mechanics and vice versa. Um, and at this point right now, story is taking precedence. Siric wants the I
5: think work. Yeah, yeah. Wants is that would work. Cerec wants the Okay. Everybody hear me? Yeah. yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, I, I did an interview with uh, Salvatore uh, not
11: too long ago. And he mentioned the fact that he found writing in certain editions was easier from a novel point of view. Oh, yeah. Specifically, he found 4-E very constraining. He wrote, uh, what he calls a perfectly designed 4-E combat. And he felt like he was shackled. Hmm. Now, I'm assuming that these novels are being written in 5-E format. Or at least...
7: They're being written for- in D&D format. In D&D. <laughs> okay, so,
11: I guess for each of you, do you have, do you think about the addition as you're writing these combats or these, these activities for your characters, or do you just do more of a freestyle?
7: So, this is um, no I guess since I'm on the left, I, um, I've gotten in trouble for this before, but I, I really think of the rule set, and this is awful, Cover years, but I really think of it more as kind of guideline than, than shackles, and um, I, that said, I, I had some, unlike Bob, I never wrote a novel set in fourth edition, but I sort of was working on one at the time. And it, it was a little bit of a different process because there are some fundamentals that you have to work into the story, notwithstanding that I say the guidelines. I mean, if you have fancy and magic or something like that, it has to be there. If you have these kinds of um, daily encounter and, and at will kinds of things, those are um, those can be troublesome to work into fiction in a way that makes it compelling. Mm-hmm. So I can see where, where Bob might have said that. I, like I said, I kind of caught a break in that respect. But, so, you know, I mean, for me, I just candidly, I try to ignore them as much as I can. I mean, I insist on the stuff that's mandatory so nobody goes, oh, my God, Kemp doesn't know what he's doing. But then I really try to finesse it as much as I can. So it just flows. I mean, the last thing that you want, obviously, is for people to go, oh, well, look, he made his, you know, pickpocket roll or something. Or, you know what I mean? Or, wow, he just used you know, whirlwind of steel or something like that. I mean, you know, you want the reader caught up in the moment and instead of thinking about a feat or a power or something along those lines, they're just going, oh, shit, that was
3: awesome.
6: <laughs> yeah, to, to echo what Paul said, the only time that I've, in my realms fiction that I have been doing game specific was when I briefly, and we're talking before second edition had officially came, come out, but the, the realms was being published, I had a book department editor, on a temporary basis. No, nothing to do with me. the <laughs> no. person killed. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Who wanted everything to match table gameplay, which meant, and, and th- th- there is a, a an element of benefit in this, or if you take this philosophy, because um, as this person said. You know, for people who um, uh, hate reading and don't read, but they're gamers, they can—they will now know the incantation for a fireball, and you will have described in detail how it was cast—the verbal, somatic, material components. Same thing with lightning bolt. Just make sure you put in magic missile and all the cool spells. Make sure they all happen. The problem with doing that, and it's great fun. I did it, and I and I, and I wrote all all into the novel, and they all got chopped out.
3: You know? <laughs> yeah,
6: all the all the four the line rhyming couplets. You know, I <laughs> wandered bath and soft waters, and the mystic words I now do speak, where I wish to play my game, lit a deer, and deer into flame. <laughs> um, and and you know, the manuscript was now four times as long as it needed to be. And as Paul was saying, it began to assume what I would call the dread compulsion of a beginning writer's fiction. And then she got up and then she went to the bathroom, undid the toothpaste tube and squeezed just the and then she put it in her mouth and went from right to left and then left her and you're going, come on! okay But, but the, the person is writing everything. So you shouldn't put everything in. The art of writing is what you, what you put in and what you leave out and what you gloss over to keep the pacing moving and what sort of pacing you need for that scene. And inevitably, if you're doing a battle... And you're stopping to say, okay, here we go, this is a lightning bolt, everybody. And then, and then for the next three pages, you describe the magic user casting the lightning bolt. Any pacing you had in that fight, well, the, the, yeah, your, 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 your reader is snoring. And the, the good thing about the writing process is even if you don't have yourself or a family member as a first reader, you have an editor as a first reader. And if the editor is going, oh, <laughs> you get the message that, oops, this has to come out. And in it, it does. So, inevitably, you end up writing what works for the story. But, as as Paul's already said, you don't want to write something that people say, that's not DD or that's not the realms. But you just want to let the story be f- forefront, not, did, did he check? Oh, I, I don't think he's read Unearthed Arcana, because on page 38... <laughs>
7: In mind, the, the lore is different from the rule set, obviously. Yeah. The lore yeah. is the scripture. The, 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 the rule set is an attempt to model behaviors in a game format right. that you don't necessarily want to see come out of fiction.
2: The way that I've always thought about it is that the rule set is, is the lens by which you view the world. But yeah. The world doesn't well it doesn't yeah. need yeah. to change, but a big part of the reason for, for all of this is changing the world in response to changing mechanics, which mm-hmm. is coming at it backwards mm-hmm. in my opinion.
8: I wanted to say there's a
4: whole writers' symposium panel about this tomorrow at 10 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with everything they said, and I won't say it again, but as far as your specific question about the difference, I found that 4th edition was harder for me to work with as a novelist, and uh, the reason is that there are things in the play of 4th edition that I found it very difficult to translate into, you know, aside from issues of the game, you know, what would really be happening, you know, on a ba- these the were real people on a battlefield, you know, what does this represent? And for me, the the most obvious thing I keep bumping up against so time and time again it was healing. In uh, in previous editions, I understood, you know, okay, the cleric can draw the power, positive energy down, which is the uh, you know. Which is the essence of life it's vitality itself, and he, you know, shoves it into the wounded guy, and it accelerates the healing process. And in a moment, in better moments, his wound is healed. You know, that's the, that was how I conceptualized it, and it made perfect sense at times. But I got further news. was like, well, there's healing surges, and this warlock or this warlord who's thirty feet away from you, you know, can help you have one in the midst of battle. And I was like, I don't understand what that. I don't, want, I don't understand what that would correspond to in, in, in story context. So there are a lot of parts of 4th edition that I guess now it can be told. Now that we're moving into D&D next, that I, I essentially treated with kind of a benign neglect. You know, If you read one of my 4th edition books and you said, you know the way he described that sounds like a
2: lot of like he was still writing in third edition. Well, you know. <laughs> Just to add one voice on the other side. I wrote a trilogy, an Eberron trilogy, that spanned the changing editions, which involved absolutely no change to the world at all. And the change of editions for me actually cut me loose from worrying about the mechanics in a strange sort of way. Because mm-hmm. so I, I had my characters all started up in third edition form, and I never bothered to do that in fourth edition. I just wrote what they could do and, and treated it more as, as if it were my own fantasy property rather than a, a D&D thing, I guess, while being true to the world again.
5: Fourth edition didn't bother me at all.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I only wrote in fourth editions. I'm not good, but I, I, I have to say, I did write in um, a character. I managed to write a character taking a healing surge, and I felt very, very proud of the way I managed to make it fit into the story without being like, Anthony took a healing surge." Oh. <laughs> I felt very smug about that. I still. Don't know that. <laughs> um, our-
1: are there any plans to take other characters um, besides these six, you know, the six novels, um, <coughs> tell the stories of what's happening to them throughout the course of The Sundering as well? I'd, want, I'd love to hear more about what, what happens to Shadow Bandit, for example. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> In terms of immediate plans, no. In terms of long-term plans, we don't. Well, we have some of those, but not, not a full plan yet. Basically the same question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You'll get basically the same
5: answer. <laughs> 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 or, or maybe not. <laughs> it's
12: kind of going okay. Characters that you sit, you six are writing about during the sundering. Um, after that novel that you publish is done, once the sundering is over, will further adventures occur with those characters, perhaps later? That is then, our plan. Oh the plan? And then um, like you're doing a whole Bunch thing about gods. I can think of at least two authors right now. Bruce Cordell's doing something mysterious, and Helm's dead. But well, Shadowbane is still yeah. So I mean, I was just wondering, is that going to affect how they write it as far as later on in their continuity?
3: Yes. Yeah.
6: <laughs> dead gods are much quieter.
1: <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Not always. Not always. <laughs>
6: It's like when they say, so-and-so, live from the stage. But I think you wouldn't want to see him dead on this day. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Can I make a comment?
7: Uh, I suppose of have watched a comment, like what you were saying about describing spells,
11: guessing spells in a novel. I think part of the problem with that, especially in the realms, is that, suppose, uh, all describes the stripes, guess line in one way, and then Ed describes mm-hmm. a different novel a different way, and then Troy does it in it, and And everybody goes, that's not the way you guess, like, well, the mm-hmm. way you well, this
6: way. Well,
12: it took longer.
11: So I think... Pulling away from the rules a little bit helps yeah. the immersion factor because if everyone describes something different and you can't expect
0: all these gentlemen to keep track of every little thing that ever happened, then
1: that's when you start to get that break. I and can't help so no. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So vagueness, you know, works. Yes, yeah.
4: yeah. um, that's well, that's true. And you could also you could also make the point that hey, maybe there's more than one thing you say that'll give you a lightning bolt Yeah. Mm
6: -hmm. oh yeah and in fact that was built into the game from the Mm -hmm. beginning because there was all this crafting your own spells and there were obviously spells that were improvements, somebody else's improvement or rejiggering of somebody else's spell so obviously you had different ways of doing it but yeah that was raised back then and the database was one of those accordion files with an A, B, C whatever and they would photocopy the thing like a press clipping and drop it in so you looked up the spell, you know, L for lightning bolt. No, nope, nothing in here, we're clear. Oh, 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 there's a lightning bolt. Oh, it's been two different ways. Um, okay, here are the two different ways you have to reconcile. Um,
2: I don't disagree with anything that anybody said, but it is part of my team's job to make sure that a lightning bolt is a lightning bolt is a lightning bolt, whether you're playing D&D the, the online or reading a novel or uh, sitting down on the tabletop to play a game. Um, not necessarily in the words you say or the gestures you perform, but that it's recognizable as, oh yeah, that's somebody casting a lightning
10: bolt. So I just want to make a comment that in the past, um, you know, I mean, clearly authors have tried to improve the game formats of the era. Um, but also, the, I think the game design also benefits a lot from the authors being creative. And I, I, to me, it's not that the books need to fit within the strictures of the game, I mean, it's an interactive process.
8: I look forward
6: to the creativity. Me too. Oh, you broke it. Okay, we're over. We're done. (laughs)
8: Uh, In regards to the the creative process, um, one of the elements that you talked about early on was how you thought the realms had sort of lost something. And the idea behind centering is to kind of get it back. So things have been added to the realm since the time when it was what you liked at the time when it's now something that you wish was more like what you liked. So I guess my question here is as as you're reviewing what the realms are and what you want to take it to, is there anything in the games or anything in the lore that you looked at as something that if you brought it back to a place where you were happier with it, something was gonna have to get cut that you saw as an obvious problem that maybe like a percentage of your audience might not be pleased with you know reverting it. I mean because I you know you're not you're not dialing back the clock, but you're bringing it back in a certain sense, which means you, you're taking it back to something that it used to be. So was there anything as you guys were going through the planning process that you thought you that a red flag went up uh, that you thought might be a problem? Or anything that you had to work through to figure out. Does my question make sense? Yes.
2: We we did a lot of working through and we've talked about things like, well, is it possible? Yes, I think it is, to have Umther and Dragonborn in the Forgotten Realms. Um, we might mm-hmm. not have a nation of Dragonborn, but Dragonborn is still gonna be there um, because there are people who like playing Dragonborn and people who think they do belong in the realms. We might not feature them on the cover of many books mm-hmm. um, the way we have recently, but uh, because for many people they, they do seem aliens to the realms, but they're not going away for
5: example. I think there was a great many discussions. I, I recall going through one afternoon just, just region by region and talking about what was there and what, oh, yeah. whether we should save it, whether we should um, move along or, or not save it and, and what you know, how many people were enjoying it, what, what our impression was of what, uh, the number of people who thought it was a positive thing. Um, so all of that was a very deliberate decision and I, I can't I don't think there's any way to talk about specifics without getting to spoilers, but...
6: I, I, think, I think it's fair to say that the discussions were more on the, the nature of, we want to refurbish this gorgeous mansion, and how do we run the construction site and move stuff around each other in the mud so that we don't damage anything, as opposed to... Oh, Shit, I can't fix a castle. Let's just bulldoze the thing and start over. You know, it's like, no, no, no. We're, we're arguing and worrying about, okay, well, if you take that bit off and put it over there until I get this fixed and then move it, you know, it, it's that old thing, the, the, the little puzzle with one square missing and you're you're moving. It, it was more like that. So I've played a bit
8: of uh, Living with Don Brown's campaign and uh, I'm wondering how much. But I haven't really read much of the books, so I'm wondering how much influence goes on between the Living for Realms campaign and the books?
4: Well, I guess the answer is basically more going forward, right? Yeah.
2: yeah I mean, uh, that's part of what you talked about. Yes. I can a little bit from the
7: side of things. Living for God and was, when we first started out, considered basically official. Um, so the, the lore that was being presented in some of those early LFR modules was supposed to be incorporated into the things that we were doing through DDI and sort of the official support for the game for the, for the world. Uh, since early Season 2, those adventures are no longer considered official for the world. So while we, those of us that do uh, the lore side of things might pull something that we find is a thing worthwhile to include in the official realms, um, we don't go and say this adventure happened. And so that's the history. It's the official history of Shadow we
8: don't, we don't process things okay? that all. Thanks, um Yeah, so I mean, I, I sort of have a follow-up question because I'm sort of playing through the epic campaign and There's a character named Sinmaker and one of the things I'm wondering is will we see Sinmaker again? I don't know if we can answer that. I don't know. Uh- But I suspect
2: if there's demand, there will be supply. (laughs) I just want
8: to see my friends get screwed over because of it. All right,
9: I want to make a comment, but then I have a question. And the comment is actually that one of the things that I've enjoyed about the books that I have read in the realms is that you don't see the mechanics, you don't see if you're not playing the game, which I'm not currently playing the game, so I'm not up on new rules. And you know, I remember magic missiles from when it was A D and D, okay? So, you know, I don't know this. But now when I'm reading, I don't think well, you know, they did this and they did that, and it's like it's just happened. It's a story and it's just happening, and that's the way it should be when you read a book. I mean, the the novel and the short stories that come around probably seem that's how they should be, and I really like that about those books, and I think that's one of the things that you do really well with some around books. Now, my question is, as as you look around this room, you can see that people of my gender are in the minority, and as I look at that board, I can see that people of my gender (laughs) are in the minority. And what I want to ask is, if, if you, those of you who are writing male characters primarily as your main characters, in, have you worked on your supporting characters, and how prominent a role are people of my gender going to play in these stories?
4: Well, somebody's got to do the dishes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But seriously, uh, <laughs> um, and, I mean, if you've read my Brotherhood of the Griffin stuff, you know there are some very prominent, important yes. female characters. And in The Reaver, there is going to be a very, very crucial female character who is going to get uh, pretty close to uh, equal screen time with, with the hero and is going to be uh, important going forward also. Can I
2: her out? Yes, yeah, please, please. Is. I, I
4: don't have everybody on
7: screen okay. now. No. Yeah,
4: there she is looking over the shoulder of choice character. That's fairly yeah. low resolution, yeah. but she looks bald and tattooed. Yeah. She is bald and tattooed. Very
3: observant
5: of you. In the Sentinel we have uh, basically an even division. We have uh, two male characters, Cleef and Malik, and then there'll be two female characters who are more or less, um, they're exact opposites. Uh, not what I want to say. Opposites. They're, they're compliments complements. You know, Clef's, um opposite, and then Malik's opposite, who are who are female characters. And I would say, uh, I pretty much envision them all as being equal, about equal in weight in terms of uh, viewpoints, and and how they're going to be driving the story. I mean, the the story is is really driven, um, the Sentinel will really be driven by a female character's desire to fulfill her goal. So.
0: I obviously, I have the, the female character up in the main characters. Um, but I also point out when I when I write, I like to make sure that I have a good balance, um, especially because when you look at the source books and things, um, you know, for example, I know in Waterdeep there are several female watch captains, right, if there are female watch captains, then there are female watchmen, right, and, and that those Watch women, I guess, um, should be running around in the periphery. Um, they, they're they also a part of the world and not just in these sort of specific examples of, of paragons, right? So um, making sure that, you know, when you, you, you have a, um, a tavern keeper, does a tavern keeper need to be a man or to be a woman? You know, you really run out to a watchman, is a man or a woman? Um, and, and making sure that you keep mind that in the realms, there's all these different opportunities for people and, and different places that they can find a role um, and excel and, and making sure that there's a balance there. I That's really important to me. So. I should point out that there were some constraints
2: to uh, our budget and capabilities in putting this piece of art together. We had to, to ask everybody to give us, what, two or three characters mm-hmm. that we can put mm-hmm. up here, which and, and which one gets the, the prominent position. Um, that is by no means to say these are all of the prominent characters in the books. Hey, not spoilers.
6: And, and in fact, for in, in my case, the eternal battle I have with editors anywhere, not just at Wizards of the Coast, is that I want all my supporting characters to get treated with as much face time as my, quote, protagonist's main mm-hmm. characters. So you, you know the guard's name before he gets stabbed and goes, ugh. <laughs> so, yeah. In, in the Herald... There will be just as many gals as guys running around the stage, um, but you know, I, to me, that's always a non-issue because we're already dealing with a fantasy world with all sorts of weird races. We're, we're beyond the male-female thing in my mind, anyway.
13: That being said, I wanted to address the comment first. And I wasn't actually going to speak up till you mentioned that. But I love Mr. Greenwood, thank you very much, for the fact that Elminster lived as a woman for several years <laughs> and had that experience. And having transgender friends playing games as well, I think that a lot of those opinions have helped them develop their own identities through their gameplay. Um, so I appreciate that when you're talking about the interaction and the relationships, being more important than the barriers in general mm-hmm. in your books. Um, please make that art available for sale. <laughs> I love loved it. Isn't that awesome? It's yeah, uh,
12: the great awesome. The awesome. yeah. one version is actually yeah, available for one awesome. of the screen screens for Ooh. Oh, yeah. Yes, I, I have it. I, I
2: love color, too. Yeah, but, um, it just occurred to me. I'm not sure I was supposed to show it. <laughs> he it he showed it at the keynote. It went up at the keynote. Yeah, yeah. you know, got it. But the we, we yeah. showed the sketch posters, but we didn't show the. That went up. Bit, yeah. <laughs> it was okay to Show James oh, <laughs> <laughs> you hey, Is that a consistent
1: artist? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Great. And then we, I did mean, actually. Uh,
4: gonna...
1: Tyler Jacobson is the artist.
4: Uh-huh. Nice. Thank you. Is there a
10: larger version with Aos boot right above?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Coming down to two multiplied Yeah.
3: <laughs> Sorry. Please go ahead. Yeah,
13: of course. Something I found really inside, uh, well, impressive, insightful, inspirational. How well you work as a team. I'd be really interested to see as a part of the centering. If you take your characters out of their individual context, give them a chance to introduce themselves somewhat like the Elminster interviews, where you get the round table. I understand there's a lot going on that you can't talk about um, to spoil, plot, but I'd love to hear what
3: they have to say about some of their experiences in your books as well.
6: So thank you guys very much. Ooh, (laughs) yes, we should do that.
0: (laughs) i tell you, Serena would not get up here
2: in front of you guys. She would Mm -hmm. would not be comfortable with that. Kicking around the idea of uh, Running a and game where every, each of you gets to play your own character and filming that. <laughs> oh, wow. that I really D&D. want to try to make that happen.
5: Yeah. yeah, that would. I just thought that would be a great thing to do at Gen Con and, and make a DM who didn't know what he was getting into running <laughs> <a DM. laughs>
4: That would be fun. Thank goodness I'm off the hook. <laughs> what? That
12: game can be a live stream? Oh, we would definitely put oh, yeah.
2: uh, <laughs> that there. Yeah. And, and
6: actually, a lot of writers do that. Rogers Lasny was famous for doing that. Every time he wrote a novel, he wrote a little short story, not intended for publication, in which he did a formative incident in the past of his protagonist. And that was just for him to get mm-hmm. the look and feel, how would the character act under pressure and so on. And if any of you have been watching the blogs, the production blogs for the forthcoming Hobbit movies, they had the essential problem of 13 dwarves and how do you differentiate them and in one of the blogs you'll see them all coming out on an empty stage as themselves in costume so you can see how the 13 dwarves are different mm-hmm. and so they can nail down for everybody working on the movie how they look and feel differently and yeah that, that's something that's always important to do
2: Snow White had it easy
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah
6: do the dishes yeah right <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: this well,
2: only seven dwarves is what I meant
6: oh. uh, yeah and I carefully didn't go where I was going to go with that
2: so. <laughs> thank
4: you Ed uh, there's a movie about that
13: <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything else that you're not sure you're supposed to show us or maybe laughter why announced
4: the Drift is actually a transformer?
2: I uh, <laughs> Well, that meets the eye. Uh...
3: <laughs>
2: so that'd be a
7: great play session next year at GenCon. We look forward to that play session. No promises.
2: <laughs> I cannot make promises. Is each author allowed to give
12: us a brief, very brief synopsis of what's the protagonist and their certain book? Mm. if
3: possible. Mm. Uh, Maybe that did yeah, kind did that we, did, that last night, <laughs> we uh, did at least that much. gave us
2: yeah. yeah a bit of that last night. In your own words, this time. Mm. <laughs> yeah.
7: I, my words are essentially Eds. Um, the, the, the book kind of continues on the story arcs that I introduced in the Erebus Kale trilogy. And the Twilight War features primarily Basin Kale, who is Erebus Kale's son, and he's half Shade, and um, so biologically he's very much Kale's son. And uh, that comes with the price. But sort of psychologically, he's very much kind of the son of, for those of you who read The Twilight War, Abelard Korenthal, who's at that time a paladin of Lethander. Now, of course, Lethander has changed to his new guise of a monitor. So his psychology is, is one where he serves the god of light, and his biology is one where he's kind of caught up in this darkness. So the story is, is about his journey and reconciling those two sides of himself and there are other people too (laughs) (laughs) some you've seen before Ribbon appears in the novel and maybe someone else who doesn't have much
6: (laughs) and for mine Elminster (laughs) Um, I can talk about other characters, but that would very quickly get into spoiler territory.
0: And we'd be here
9: forever.
6: Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) because you would want to talk about all of
6: them. I of course, because they're all they all deserve are worthy of the same attention. Um, So let's just say that the storm is still around. Um, There's something to do with someone from Candlekeep, and it will probably not come as a surprise to you that, being as Elminster is a magic guy, there are lots of people who are powerful in magic that may be making brief appearances or disappearances. <laughs> that. That's
3: not that <laughs>
0: um Farida is a, the character from my Brimstone Angels books. She's a tiefling warlock um, who's sort of accidentally fallen into an infernal pact. Um, and, yeah.
3: I forgot I signed
6: it. How did I get in this handbasket? Those two unpleasant moments on the altar with the blood? <laughs> I don't
3: remember <laughs>
0: You'd be surprised how easy it is, especially when, you know, the person offering is, uh, kind of a fox. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, um, in the time of the adversary, she's coming to realize a lot of things about, who, you know, her past and who she is, and, um, how that, you know, whether or not she can get away from that um, and be her own person, or um, if she's sort of doomed to that. Um, and in trying to fix things that she, you know, trying to solve problems before they happen, um, she, she kind of makes things a lot worse.
5: Um, in mine, uh, my male protagonist, Cleef, uh, uh, who's a staunch paladin who's I'm still continuing to worship the dead god Helm, uh, meets um, his, uh, the, 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 uh, what I want to say, the, the light of his life, uh, self-delusion of uh, the princess with an exaggerated sense of self-importance. <laughs> and uh, um, they join uh, uh, Malik and the woman who he is in love with, the priestess of Sune on a pretty important journey Uh, and, I don't know, hilarity and forbidden love ensues. Mm. (laughs)
3: Uh,
4: My character is a guy who started out life as a uh, honorable uh, naval officer and uh, uh, basically uh, did some things that he knew were against the rules but that he thought were going to be harmless and they turned out to be very far from harmless. He wound up, tragedy ensued. He wound up disgraced. He is now living the life of a uh, amoral, uh, ruthless pirate, uh, having abandoned all thought of honor or morality and expecting to uh, live out his days as that same amoral, ruthless pirate. And uh, life is going to uh, take him down an unexpected path.
2: Manchester. And then Bob, Yeah. And, so if you don't oh, know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although there are certainly other characters that play an important role in that book as well. Mm-hmm.
7: <laughs> i got a okay. um, How much of the, the canon is, is set in stone before you guys get to the part that you get to start writing your play? I mean is the stage already set? Are the props already there? Are you helping build the props in the stage and writing the characters that are there? I mean like if you need to come up with a drink at a bar, are you coming up with the name for the drink at a bar and then that gets put into the canon or are you just blocking that out as a variable and then that's coming in from you know the editors of the, the canon keepers. Is there a great big tome of you know uh forgotten Realms that all there is that it. It. Yes, it it's, it's sitting next to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my general rule is I send an email. I my general rule is I send an email to Ed first. Okay. And or to, to somebody who will pass it on to Ed and just ask, hey, is there this or that kind of thing with respect to his ships in the MC or the kind of you know coinage used in Sembia and so on and so forth and And uh, that way, you know, we get a consistent look and feel across all the novels and you're building on the lore instead of sort of replacing things that then need to get juggled. But very often, at least in my experience, there are, you know, obviously the realms is just an enormous tapestry. And despite all of the detail, you know, just as if we were trying to sort of, when we try to write encyclopedias of all the details of our world, there are just huge amounts of information that aren't there. So that's part of the process is you, you, you create those things. And then other people build on those later. And in the heart of the action,
6: when you're right down there in the middle of the novel in the Sundering and everybody's fighting, we treat cannon like the death of Lord Cutler Beckett in, in Pirates of the Caribbean. Remember, all the cannon are flying all over the decks and guys are just over the rails and the ship's blowing up? That's what it feels like. And when you're finished, they're all in neat rows. And it looks like nothing's ever happened. And everyone's paying attention. <laughs> well, that's how canon's made. It, the process for me depends
5: on depends on um, on what type of scene I'm writing. If I'm writing a scene where it's going to have an impact to the rest of the book, and I need need to make an, an assumption about canon or, or set up a piece of canon that doesn't exist, then... I'll try to uh, get that clarified beforehand that it's okay because if it's difficult to undo, I don't have to, you know, like rewrite five chapters of a book because I mean I went I zigged when I should have zagged. So I'll try to get that clarified. But if I'm writing through and it's a it's a piece of canon that that I can just toss off and I can remove it easily later if I need to. You know, I, I think a character is named, you know, should be this certain lord, and if it turns out that it should be a different certain lord. It's a matter of, you know, fixing a paragraph. Then I just go fly with that and, you know, and, and send it in and see how it, how it flies. Um, but I feel like we're... The process so far is we've been kind of... Uh, I mean, when you're working on any shareholder world, the first rule is use what's there. Don't make up something new if it exists. And that's a matter of trying to know the world well enough. And, and a lot of times, you know, you... you there are... I hate to admit it, but there are a lot of people who really know all of the Forgotten Realms a lot better than I ever did, um, even, you know, ten years ago. And so you can't know everything, but you know as much as you can, and you use as much as you can, and then you go to people like Ed or, or, or Eric or, or people to, to fill in the gaps to catch you and where you're short. Um,
7: I, I think the idea is always to nest a story in the Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. because then it feels like a forgotten story as opposed to just a fantasy, genre, a fantasy story but but as I said there are times when you need to make things up. Now I think I misunderstood your question. Broadly speaking at least from a process perspective you submit an outline ahead of time and big things that might affect canon are usually going to get sorted at that stage mm-hmm. so it would be unusual I think I mean, unless your outline is really vague to, to end up writing five chapters of something where you, you really ran afoul some, unless somebody dropped the ball and that can happen but that would be atypical
6: Yeah, our outlines are very rarely, we'll have guys fighting.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, if you wrote that an outline, and send it back and go, no, 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 <laughs> 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 who, how, what? Yeah. Is the PowerPoint for the stuff that I'm asking
0: is like, how you know, like, so much mm-hmm. not be
1: available? I think the whole thing has
2: been recorded and will be available on the Wizards website. And you Oh, and I will. Oh my gosh, we will all be here oh again god. tomorrow. Oh my god. Ten a.m. Ten a.m. Oh my. god. Wow. I again.
4: <laughs> Sunday morning makes sense. <laughs> yeah, bring some. I was a big... oh, no, every so, I'm sorry. It's not Saturday morning. <laughs> Never mind. What's right
6: I didn't say. Anything. Oh never mind. What's it somebody else?
0: If, uh, Ed was muttering about coffee.
6: Yeah, if it's ten in the morning, bring a big vat of coffee for us to roll around.
3: Yeah. For everyone. <laughs>
2: oh, that's coffee. a
6: different sort of seminar.
2: <laughs> all right, and on that note. <laughs> I think we are going to let you go. Thank you all for coming. And-